How do we understand the complex psychology of war? Welcome to The Hub for Important Ideas. I'm Steve James. And I'm Ken Swain. In this episode, we discuss war again, this time from the psychological perspective, exploring the fantastical nature of war and, as always, possibilities for hope. That's right, Steve. We're going to play for you an interview we conducted with Dr. Jerry Piven. Jerry Piven, Ph.D., teaches in the Department of Philosophy at Rutgers Three of his most notable books are Slaughtering Death on the Psychoanalysis of Terror, Religion, and Violence, The Psychology of Death in Fantasy and History, and Death and Delusion, a Freudian Analysis of Mortal Terror. In the past decade, he's published over 50 papers, and he's currently working on a book to be titled Pious Massacre, Literary Violence from Dostoevsky to Mishima, and an edited collection called Death, Religion, and Evil. And Jerry is a shameless fan of Star Trek. Shameless fan. Yeah, which we love. Here's the interview with Dr. Piven. Jerry, welcome back to the Hub for Important Ideas. Oh, did I did I go anywhere? Oh, well, thanks for having me. <laughs> Hi, Jerry. Hi. <laughs> oh, well, thank you for being our guest once again. That's what I meant. It's a pleasure to have you back on our show. Thanks so much. So, Jerry, the subject for this episode is war. America just completed a 20-year war in Afghanistan. Our nation is responsible for at least half a million total deaths. We've spent $8 trillion in the past 20 years with very little to show for it. Without getting into what all the various wars started out to be, What have they meant to our society? Well, clearly war doesn't mean the same thing for everyone. So some may see these various wars as necessary actions undertaken to preserve freedom and democracy from the evil menaces of terrorism or tyranny. And some may see those incursions as various attempts to root out evil and preserve the freedoms against uh, despots that they deem to be violating human rights and committing injustices. And then there are others who more cynically perceive such acts with horror as a continuation of America's self-righteously insidious corruption masquerading as some kind of concern for freedom and human rights. So such events don't mean the same thing for everyone. But the actuality of those events and their political motivations is chasmically different from the meaning, right? So as you know, there's a semiotic and symbolic meaning or imagination of these acts. And by semiotic, I allude to the study of signs, uh, whereby, as uh, Roland Barthes put it, the slippage of meaning creates a kind of mythology, which he calls the naturalization of fictions or fantasies. So the sinister danger here is that various incursions, including the ones that may not be impelled by actual concerns for life and freedom, are still going to be understood or misunderstood semiotically or paranoically within the fantastical imagination or mythology of sanctimonious necessity, elimination of evil, righteous intervention, 
even divine mandate, all couched in the argot of ardent patriotic defense, life and freedom against injustice and actual danger. So one problem here is that all this semiotic fiction and fantasy has so blurred and conflated the difference between actual human rights violations or imminent threats and fairy tale fantasies of evil that people may then derive deep gratification from the mirage that we're actually purging evil as we massacre countless human beings. Again, though there may be times when political action must be taken, that's radically different from the interpretations or fantasies people may invent to justify those actions so that they can bask in the luxurious pleasure of subduing terror or eradicating evil or preserving democracy. And all that meaning has the ritual function of not only giving a face to evil or knowing where evil is and then killing it off, but in displacing or expelling the anxiety that evil may even be lurking within our society or within oneself. So our perceptions of evil are often no more realistic than the children in Lord of the Flies, seeing a dead parachutist in a distant tree and imagining it as some malicious monster. And like those children, we can wallow in those fantasies of monstrous evil in order to blind ourselves to the marauding violence we crave or commit. As Chris Hedges wrote, war is a force that gives us meaning. But that specific meaning is not only a fantasy narrative of American freedom and justice, but a kind of witchcraft that transmogrifies the other into evil while bleaching the self so that we can be baptized in purity and inflict our own terror sanctimoniously. So yeah, there's a complexity and proliferation and elusiveness of all these meanings. It's a complex psychological issue. Yeah. We're thinking about the society at large and what the wars have meant to us as a nation, as a society, and what it means to our culture. How do you respond to that? We have these various kinds of fantasies that put a face on evil and allow us to then punish and destroy evil as we bask in our own righteousness, as we become the cowboys of the world in our 10-gallon hat or something. And we can self-righteously say that we are protecting the world and freedom and democracy. We love those terms, freedom, democracy, et cetera, et cetera. We throw those terms around as though we really understand them. But we're so incredibly inconsistent and incoherent and often hypocritical about it that when we start to maraud around slaughtering people and, and killing them self-righteously, we imagine we're doing something for the sake of humanity and the planet and so forth. And that's what's so insidious about this semiotics or fantasy of evil. The meaning we get from it is this imagination of our country as one of freedom and democracy. And don't get me wrong, we have amazing freedoms and rights here, but we also violate them so despicably uh, and so flagrantly. And then don't hold ourselves necessarily accountable. So the meaning, again, is one of this kind of righteousness and pervasiveness and proliferation of, of goodness that we spread to the world. There's this really kind of funny Family Guy episode. I don't, I don't know if you watch this uh, demented show, but there's this <laughs> great scene where Americans bomb Middle Eastern nations. And before you know it, the women wearing burqas or whatever are suddenly women in bikinis washing each other off with hoses and then kissing each other. And that kind of ludicrous image 
demonstrates the ways in which we kind of have this bizarre fantasy that we're going to spread democracy and we're doing all this good stuff and that we're not committing atrocities. So the meaning, depending again on on the person and the culture and individual, I mean, there's so many variants of this, can still be ways of fantasizing the self into feelings of goodness and fantasizing that we're making the world safe and fantasizing that the evil doesn't exist within us, right? It gives us a sense of meaning, displaces anger from within our communities uh, and binds us together, as Freud and and Hitler both uh, said, uh, Freud with some sadness and irony. So yeah, those meanings can be incredibly powerful, not only in creating, again, the fantasies of goodness, but finding ways of mythologizing our own criminal desires and activities. Bind us together. Indeed. Bind us together through, again, various fantasies of violence and purgation and elimination of evil and, uh, and so on. Jerry, it's so fun to listen to you talk about this stuff. We have, we have gone to our archives and brought out a question that you yourself asked, and I'm going to quote it back to you and see if you want to have an answer for it. It's a little bit long, and it's rife with indignation, which is most appropriate, I think. Yeah. You once said, how much injustice... I'm torture in these camps in Iraq. How many civilians have to be cordoned and captured and tortured, even though they might not be called tortured by our government? How many people have to be massacred? How many civilians have to be blown up? How much rape do you have to see before you actually think this is important enough to care about? Do you have an answer now for that question, which you yourself asked? Uh, No. No. <laughs> no, I, I, I can questions and, and, and sound profound without answers. No. Um, the reason that, there, that I don't have an answer for that is because it's really difficult to quantify such realizations because those realizations don't really depend on the accrual of facts or evidence. It's not like we are sort of blind to the stuff and then when we get enough knowledge, we suddenly awaken to it. We intuitively assume that People will tend to be vague and distracted by all sorts of other things going on, but that when there's enough media attention and the imagery is too difficult to ignore, that we'll be moved by such injustices and finally pay attention. And while we do tend to ignore the suffering that isn't close to us, and while we do tend to function or survive by evading excessive stimuli that would otherwise be too overwhelming to process, uh, there's conspicuous evidence uh, on all of this, from terror management theory to to Lakoff and Johnson to Drew West and all that stuff. But there's also some other disturbing stuff going on, too. So yes, clearly one of the decisive factors can be media attention. And yes, we tend to invest our concerns in proximal crises and filter out excessive information in order to function. Otherwise, there'd be a constant cacophony of discordant confusion and chaos and pain and justice, outrage and death. But One of the clues was recently provided from the terror management folks, right? When Sheldon Solomon reports that people have the propensity to reject facts, even when inundated by mountains of evidence, it's more than filtration or even dissociation or denial or doubling, as Robert Lifton calls it. What these TMT studies show is that the dystonic, disgusting, horrifying facts are not merely rejected because they cause such pain and fear. That rejection consists of throwing oneself more passionately and righteously into those various fictive narratives, precisely because those fictive narratives were the ones invented or adopted to eliminate the terror of death. 
So when I asked how many deaths or massacres, it's not just a matter of numbers or media attention. Yeah, that media attention will have an effect, as I said, but the research again suggests that the very media attention and inundation by facts may simultaneously lead to massive denial or even sanctimonious fervor, since the distress and terror that they cause may induce that flight back into those very death and reality denying narratives. Of course, as per the last question, there may be other motives and gratifications as well. So when we ask how many deaths and massacres have to happen before we pay attention, not only must we consider terror, but gratification, because there are also people who slake their thirst for violence and and suffering on these events, and again, feel empowered and purified by the ways we dominate the world, or torture deserving evildoers, humiliate them, or even experience apotheosis in that dominion we have over evil and danger. It's an incredible contradiction, though, when you think about it, that we're doing these horrible things and telling ourselves that we're the heroes of the world while we're doing it. And how could you not then deny that these are terrible things while you're telling yourself that you're the most wonderful cops of the world, saving the world from these terrorists? It's an incredible contradiction that you have to carry in your head. Well, it is, Steve. And as I say, we're probably repeat ad fornicum nauseum, as the psychiatrist Lang used to say, human beings have an almost unlimited capacity for self-deception. And again, it's not just denial or rejection of painful facts. It's also that we will sometimes throw ourselves into these fictional, fantastical narratives because those are the ones that blot out the dread of death, or in, in many cases, not only blot out the dread, but blot out our awareness of who we are and what our motives are and what we're doing. So in one sense, the obvious answer that people might give is, well, we need to be more compassionate. We need to educate each other. We need to mature. We need to be receptive and open to the humanity of others and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, we should, but it's not just like we need to be exposed to more facts and become more realistic or be better educated. We have these unfortunate inner dynamics to throw ourselves into fantastical narratives, especially when they keep us away from our own self-awareness, not only of what we fear, but also motivation sometimes. So there isn't an easy answer to this. That's why I said, uh, no, I don't have any kind of a real solution, even though there can be suggestions for how we might proceed, right? Uh, It's unfortunate. You can't just tell people, here, be aware, care about this, be compassionate. Let me add another aspect of this. Yeah, Ernest Becker, who's the author of The Denial of Death, defined heroism as first and foremost a reflex of the terror of death. Is war an opportunity for heroism? And if so, why? Uh, I, yeah, I like that question. Um, <laughs> well, let's clarify what Becker seemed to mean by the term heroism. There are different manifestations of this heroism, as, um, well, scholars like Dan Lichty have illustrated in various writings. And, and some of those acts may surely be courageous and compassionate. But Becker wasn't saying that people actually become heroic in the face of death. He was suggesting that the dread of death impels people to hurl themselves into cultural hero systems. That is, they reflexively seek out those culturally defined paths to 
appear heroic, which is different from actually being heroic in some abstract sense of having bravery or courage or something. So Becker wasn't really talking about risking life and limb to do heroic things, but was specifically alluding to a mode of attaining self-esteem by following practices or fulfilling roles that society deemed admirable, that would provide feelings of being good, virtuous, special, or significant, rather than insignificant, weak, or despicable. So indeed, war can, for some people, be an opportunity for heroism, and some may indeed sacrifice themselves or jump on uh, grenades to save their comrades or risk their lives to defend other human beings and so on. People do exhibit actual courage. But we have to remember that for Becker, heroism is not about actual courage, but in many cases, the opposite, an utter lack of courage. Heroism is a reflex, not courage and confrontation with death, but a flight from death, a strategy of attaining self-esteem and feelings of significance that dissipate the dread of death. And here, Becker is echoing Kierkegaard and Heidegger's notion that people submerge themselves in the they in modes of obliviousness and comfort derived from immersion in what others believe and desire. In those social mythologies and actions that gain the love and admiration of others, which is again, a manifestation of fear. So indeed, war can be an opportunity for heroism. It is an opportunity for people to face death and disfiguration, to protect others, to fight against tyranny and injustice. It is a space where the Tuskegee Airmen can show their mettle, where one courageous officer can place his chopper between innocence and machine guns. Milai, for example, where soldiers can stop slaughters, rapes, and grotesque inhumanity. But it's also a place where people can sing cadences about killing commies and Chinese, as one of my students just said after going through basic training, or a place where soldiers can soothe themselves with fantasies of being somebody significant and patriotic, even as they violate others and participate in lascivious torture and rape, as one of my friends in the military told me, where the soldiers were acting really horribly and he keeps reporting it and the commanders keep saying, we're ignoring that. We're not going to do anything about it. This isn't happening. Now shut up and do your job. So war is an opportunity for heroism and it could bring out the most noble and courageous acts in some, but Pace, Becker, and Kierkegaard can also bring out the most vacuous postures of heroism that only thinly veil the weakness and fear that seek out modes of violence and death to create the masquerade of courage or nobility. Wow. And we have to be aware then of what Becker means and the nuances of that. Well, yeah. Jerry, Ernest Becker says that throughout history, a great deal of bloodshed and slaughter has been inflicted by those who are trying to overcome evil. Would you comment on that? And is that what the war on terror was? Well, yeah. First of all, I mean, the irony here is that when people are committing acts of bloodshed or when they're engaged in war, they have the fantasy that they're doing something right. They're serving their country. They're defending the nation against actual danger and evil. But as Becker is saying, this is really kind of a fantasy. And quoting Zillborg, right, he says that sadism absorbs the fear of death. Not that all war is sadism, it's not. But what he's getting at is that we develop these fantasies of other human beings as evil and develop these fantasies of the danger 
And thus, when we start to inflict violence on others, we imagine it as patriotic and righteous, even as we're doing the slaughtering. And that's the irony. And that's why, in many ways, war is fantastical or a fantasy. And I'd like to sort of expand on that in a moment, because I'm not suggesting that there aren't ever genuine evils or times when we have to respond or something. But war can be a fantasy because whatever the reality and the facts may be, we still imbue them with fantasy. We interpret these events, whatever the reality of the events, we interpret them in fantastical ways. We can distort them in ways that fulfill our own fantasies born of terror and desire. And it could be an immensely gratifying to stomp on that evil, destroy that evil, and imagine that we have conquered something that is a genuine danger. And the problem is here, there are actually malicious, malevolent predators in the world, right? But as the philosopher Jean-Luc Picard once said, <laughs> uh, there are... Oh, we had to work in... We had well, to work. Uh, no, no, no. So, go. All right, all right. I, I, he's 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 real. I understand. He's, yeah, a, yeah, he's real. Bear with me. That's, all right. So, yeah. So so as 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 the philosopher Picard once said, there are a few mustache twirling villains out there, and they rarely present themselves so conspicuously, and they seldom brag about being terrorists or putty grabbing stable geniuses, and even when they do. We still transfigure them with a kind of delirium comparable to the denizens of padded and pillow guy sanitaria. So even when there are malevolent dangers actually out there, we tend to fantasize them into our own delirium. There's a great scene from Harold and Kumar Escape from Guantanamo Bay. I can't remember if I ever mentioned this to you folks, because it's the kind of thing that comes up close through my transom often enough, right? But there's a scene where this woman on an airplane looks back at the titular protagonist, who is a handsome and clean-cut yet brown person. And she sees him as a cackling, bearded terrorist delectating on the terroristic destruction he's about to commit. And so, yeah, what this gets at, somewhat comedically, but in a way really horribly, is that we're fantasizing animals. Or as Patricia Berry wrote, echoing Shakespeare, we dream while we're awake. And so as per that allusion to Lord of the Flies I mentioned earlier, we can transform human beings or even hapless corpses, for that matter, into monsters can look at people of color and see malicious predators and criminals, and we can ecstatically dismember them while the community ejaculates with joy and hands around his dismembered genitals, as Orlando Patterson details horribly in Rituals of Blood. We can call people communists and socialists and rapists and murderers and terrorists or imagine them about as realistically as a movie depicts orcs and vampires and supervillains. There's an apposite meme floating around the internet, which you've probably seen a million times, that juxtaposes radically different images and says something like, how Americans see themselves and how the world sees us, right? And it's not just Americans, of course, but the comedic insight of the meme is that we can so distort and delude ourselves that we may again transmogrify ourselves into heroes and saviors and others into dementors and balrogs, whatever actual malevolence and evil may be, we mutilated into Sodom or Mordor. There's a great book by Norman Kahn called The Pursuit of the Millennium. And he talks about the ways in which medieval crusaders slaughtered Jews and Muslims as embodiments of the Antichrist and Satan and so forth. So yeah, war can be a fantasy where we can magically transform the self from an insignificant weakling nobody into the apotheosis of patriotic nobility and superiority. It can transform the other 
into the embodiment of rapacious malice or despotic wickedness. It can transform slaughter into sanctimonious salvation and heroism, entitled patriotic mandate to kill anything in one's righteous path, the right to torture, humiliate, and massacre all those despicable beings clamoring for evil. It can be a fantasy that, again, displaces fear, misery, spite, bitterness, helplessness, self-loathing into the other so that they are evil while the self is purified and amplified. It can be a fantasy that enables one to know and to unknow and evacuate the self and clothe the other in one's own despised core being. It can be a fantasy of apotheosis, redemption, and rebirth. It can recycle the fantasy of ekpyrosis or ekpyrosis, cleansing and rebirth through fiery destruction, as some scholars like Dave Beisel have even adumbrated. And this is really weird and counterintuitive. War can even embody the desire to sacrifice the self, to slaughter one's own weakness, to punish one's own weakness, to purify the self through self-sacrifice and death, because people may suffer their own need for punishment and forgiveness that can only be satisfied by lacerating the self. So self-sacrifice can be a fantastical path to forgiveness, goodness, redemption, absolution, or even love, as one suffers wounds and pain in order to gain that deliverance and love. And a nation, as been said, a nation can be sacrificing its young, brave people, especially our, its young men, in yeah. this sort of blood sacrifice. Yeah. And, right. And, Becker calls it a potlatch. Yeah, yeah, a potlatch. And then we, for whatever reason, we always say we're defending our freedom, as though the Taliban went marching down Main Street and we have to defend our freedom from these hordes of horrible Afghans. And and to the best of my knowledge, the Taliban has never attacked American soil or threatened our freedom. Freedom, I think, is more threatened by our own people than people outside of this country. But also, let me add one more thing. Where does vengeance fit into this? Because 9-11 was an attack, and so many people enlisted in the military then to get revenge. How does that factor into all this? Okay, well, two things on that, Stephen, and I better say them quickly before I forget. First of all, some people might respond to your comments about the Taliban by saying that they might not be an actual threat to American or American soil, but that they are terrorists or that they subjugate their own people. And you can look at the acts of what they do, whether they're killing women or they're throwing homosexuals off buildings or dropping walls on them, right? One of the early books on the Taliban described the kinds of things that people would do to each other, they could arguably be described as terrorists or people who commit incredible human rights violations and so forth. So somebody might respond to that by saying that they don't have to be a threat to us for them to be a threat that is worth destroying, right? But Mm. that aside, even though they may not be a threat to American soil, and even though they might be committing various kinds of real human rights violations and doing some despicable things, the reality of those things, as I said, is is always going to be different from the way we imagine and fantasize people as some sort of cosmic evil enemy. And that's part of the problem is the space between the reality of things and the fantasy that then justifies various kinds of extermination that somehow amplifies the enemy into some sort of imminent danger that must be destroyed. And that when it's destroyed, it's destroyed for the sake of, again, democracy and freedom and so forth. It's absolute necessity. We have to do this lest this incipient danger, overwhelm, and destroy us. 
So that's part of the fantasy. Even if various cultures or organizations may be dangerous and doing despicable things, it's not just the actuality that becomes the issue for us. And that's why it's so easy for us to slaughter them and then feel somehow as if we've saved the planet in doing so. Now, that relates paradoxically, unexpectedly, to that question about vengeance, Steve. And the question is, well, what do we mean by vengeance, first of all? Well, vengeance is one of those peculiar and slippery terms, because vengeance makes it seem as though we are actually avenging an atrocity or crime committed by a specific group of people. But again, there's that sort of fantasy slippage in the term vengeance. So when you have G.W. Bush claiming that we are retaliating against those who made 9-11 happen, there should be this moment of, of kind of dissonance where we say, wait a minute, if that were truly the case, that it was just a morally righteous, appropriate response to an act of violence, then we wouldn't be necessarily bombing Afghanistan into the Stone Age, right? So if we want to look at facts here, for example, then we have to look at the narrative and say, wait a minute, if we're actually responding to an act of violence, why are we responding not against the people who committed the violence, but a culture that is totally unrelated? So for instance, Osama bin Laden and Saddam Hussein were enemies. They weren't in cahoots. They weren't partners in crime. They despised each other. And so 9-11 was not committed by Iraq, for example, right? It was committed by a group of different terrorists from different nations, especially Egypt, for example, and um, Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia. So it's a kind of weird, peculiar, demented fantasy to say, oh, okay, terrorists from individual organizations that are based in Saudi Arabia and Egypt uh, attacked us, so let's go bomb the Iraqis. I mean, that's kind of a comical American response and, and pretext for warfare. But then if, if we do this, we have to understand that, again, the vengeance is not really incredibly realistic. And the vengeance might entail something beyond simply avenging an injustice or a crime or a murder or something like this, that the vengeance itself is more than it seems on the surface. And it's more than it seems on the surface, not only because politicians are giving us pretexts and, and fooling us into believing that certain wars are justified. Yes, there is that kind of mendacious manipulation and so forth. But there's also the psychology of the vengeance, whereby we, again, get into these fantasies and displacements such that people then can inflict their own terror and hostility on various other targets, or what Volkan calls like a responses to, quote, chosen trauma, which means that people aren't realistically, but fantastically harping upon various kinds of fears and anxieties and injustices and political events in order to justify some sort of aggression and evacuation and so forth. There's a vast difference between retaliating against an actual event and retaliating in a way that it acts various kinds of fantasies that people don't recognize. And again, of course, that's imbued with the political machinations. Really hard to know ourselves, really hard to understand our own motivations, not only as yeah. individuals, but as a society. This is complicated. We've yeah. been talking with psychologist Jerry Piven on war and related subjects. We're going to take a short break. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. We're having a conversation about war with Jerry Piven, psychologist at Rutgers University. Jerry, how would you relate war to giving us meaning? Well, 
people can derive different kinds of meanings from this war. And some of them are more realistic and some of them are more fantastical and people derive different kinds of meaning from it. So again, some people are going to imagine war as a way of uniting us patriotically. War has this amazing capacity to make us allies against some sort of common evil. And it has a fantastical way of displacing all of our anxieties and hostilities against each other onto those those others, all the, those demonized others. It has a kind of really insidious way of displacing and masquerading our own inner conflicts and fears and despair by, again, mapping them onto others and crushing them and so forth. So people can derive a number of different kinds of meanings, right? They can feel that there is a purpose to life through war. Sometimes they feel deprived of meaning and love and camaraderie when they don't have an enemy to target. Sometimes people, again, need that violence in order to feel like there is some sort of redemption of the self. Sometimes people need that kind of war as a way of redeeming themselves from feelings of, of insignificance and badness. Sometimes there are meanings to to feeling like here is where evil is. We know what it is. The world isn't a terribly chaotic place where evil can come out from any dark alley and attack us ignominiously, unawares. We can arise and unite and destroy that wickedness in an act of righteous vengeance or patriotism or nobility and so forth. So there are different kinds of meanings that are both individual and cultural or social. But it makes you stop and think about the 30,000 suicides of American military people coming back from the Middle East wars. 30,000, that's an alarming tragedy. I'm not saying that they all suffered a conflict of meaning or a crisis of meaning, but it certainly seems like it plays into it. How do you respond to that? Well, there are many possible answers to this, Steve. I mean, people who come back from war, sometimes they feel this incredible loneliness and loss from not having others around them to give them that sense of meaning and purpose, to not give their lives structure and to make them feel like they're doing something that's important and something that is for others and, and for a higher purpose. And in many times they come back and research suggests over and over again, it has for, for decades, how much people can come back from those events, not only traumatized by what they experienced, but what they inflicted. So soldiers can be horrified by, yeah, sure, they've been injured horribly. They've seen their friends killed. It is truly atrocious, but also many, in many cases, they're traumatized by what they had to inflict and what they saw that they did by what they themselves experienced in response to killing others and so forth. So people come back, they're emotionally devastated. Sometimes they've lost a tremendous amount of sort of purpose and meaning, and they've been deprived of this. Maybe so much of what they've experienced calls that into question and deranges their sense of simplicity and purpose. Many times they're just confronted with such ugliness and death and inhumanity, again, in themselves and in others. And unfortunately, they come back into a society where they're largely neglected, where they don't get the right kind of acceptance and help and and treatment. They don't feel a sense of being nurtured and buoyed by the people around them. I'm sure you have too had all sorts of friends. I've had plenty of students, um, colleagues, uh, acquaintances who have come back and they feel completely untethered. They have a sense of anomie. They have a sense of being utterly destroyed and, and fragmented by the experience. But how do they cope with it? Who do they talk to? Even when there are people to talk to, it's not adequate to the overwhelming chaos and pain of what they've experienced. And so 
in many cases, it's very difficult to put things back together. And the misery, the emotional damage is just so palpable. And we're not providing the means for human beings to find themselves again. Now, I'm not sure how that would happen, but we're clearly not doing enough because we have so many people who are suffering the symptoms and they're really in pain. Many of them, even those who aren't committing suicide, are still experiencing suicidal feelings and a lack of purpose and a difficulty in getting oneself up and feeling like there's any reason to do anything, anything to focus on, to give them anchoring. So it's not only horribly destructive to those who are killed, but those who survive. Yeah. It's horrible. Yeah. Jerry, how is war a triumph over our own deaths? (laughs) Well, we're ensconced in that fantasy that through the killing, you are then conquering that which is dangerous. You are destroying the evil and you're destroying your helplessness against it. You have fantasized the other into that figure of death. I mean, literally, the opponent may actually be uh, somebody who threatens you with death. But psychologically speaking, there is this dread that is emotionally conquered through killing off evil and danger in the other. And so this is why there is that potential feeling of euphoria or even ecstasy in the killing of the other. It's not just abject sadism, although abject sadism could exist, for example. I mean, one looks at what happened in Abu Ghraib, for example, in torture camps and so forth. One can find all sorts of research on people deriving pleasure from violence, but it's not just the abject sadist per se that that derives pleasure here. I mean, according to Becker, it's that sadism absorbs the, the dread of death by smashing it and crushing it in the other, and one attains this sort of uh, illusion the feeling of bliss, that the danger no longer existed, that one has power to triumph over it through that violence. But even that momentary triumph is also a lingering sort of protracted response to a kind of existential dread that's not going to go away through that death. So this is why it's imbued with such fantasy and can become addictive and is experienced as some sort of apotheosis or triumph through that activity of crushing the the fantasy of, of what is annihilating. If we could drill down into that a little bit more, Jerry, you once spoke about systems that provide defense against the dread of death and annihilation as becoming sacred, even if not overtly sacred, but that they become dogmas that protect the self against the terror of annihilation. What do you mean by their being sacred? Well, I think at the time I was probably drawing on Elliot Jakes's article from the 1950s about social systems as a defense against the fear of death. But what makes it sacred is that the evacuation of terror and dread, they purge inner conflict. They purge feelings of helplessness. They even purge feelings of guilt. So it becomes the desperate means of killing off those feelings and surviving existentially or psychologically. It's the embodiment of what Mike Eigen says when suggesting that delusion and madness can be a defense against psychic disintegration. I mean, it's kind of paradoxical and counterintuitive, right? Because we think of these deliria, delusions, various kinds of impulses as symptoms of psychopathology or something. What Eigen is saying is that even though they are expressions of psychopathology, they're also enacted or believed in order to create some kind of stability, some kind of belief or security, that they are defenses against disintegration. You need this kind of delusion in order to protect you against further emotional derangement and falling apart. So, These ideas, these fantasies or activities become sacred because they're so desperately necessary, because we are so desperate to escape ourselves, to escape our 
terror or despair or even our inner awareness. It becomes sacred because these fantasies or delusions or activities purify and redeem us because cherishing and amplifying such visions, such delirium can feel so redeeming. War provides meaning and becomes a sacred triumph over death, over the terror of one's own disintegration and annihilation. But again, as I said, against the existential death we dread, which is different. So our own significance and knowledge of our own desires and motivations, the secret self that we hide from ourselves and others, it becomes a defense against our own vulnerability and laceration by those feelings of vulnerability, powerlessness, guilt, contempt, self-disgust. So this is, again, why Vulcan can say that we have a need for enemies and allies, so that we can displace and project our own terror, our own trauma our own insignificance, our own miseries onto others. They're sacred because it's so existentially necessary, so desperately necessary. It's a sign of of despair so that we can purge ourselves and cleanse ourselves of such evils and despise those qualities in others and destroy those qualities in the others and derive some sort of ecstatic feeling of purification or love or redemption or loyalty or quasi-divine goodness in crushing all that evil and death. Wow. Complicated. Yeah, that is amazing, though. Jerry, here's a question you once posed to Sheldon Solomon that he had no real answer for. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Maybe you will uh, do better. I doubt it. How do you you enable people to confront what terrifies them without having them fall back into some sort of violence or discrimination or heroism, immortality ideology? Well, yeah, that's that's incredibly difficult, right? I mean, first of all, are we talking about individuals or talking about how to do this as a society? Because as a society, it's pretty damn difficult to implement some sort of a plan that's going to reach to people in some transformative way. It's not like we can do social therapy very easily and so forth. It has to really reach into people's humanity and not just in a sort of temporal way. Is it at least hypothetically possible that when you confront people with humanity, and not to use a cliche, but with a certain amount of love, with a a genuineness of appreciation of their humanity and their culture, even if you don't agree with them politically, because you don't have to agree politically, but you can still really genuinely show an expression of care, genuine care. And empathy. And empathy, exactly. Then it has at least in some people the capacity to maybe let some of those defenses down. And to allow people to recognize their own their own anger or their own anxiety about who you are. It's hard when you have the fantasy that the other is evil incarnate. Right. And that they're all out to kill me and everyone like me. And how do I empathize with them? Indeed. And that's, that's incredibly difficult. It's incredibly difficult because we ourselves have to genuinely let those barriers down and those defenses down in order to express sincere love rather than, you know, some sort of condescending appearance of of love or whatever, that there's humanity in people who may necessarily be from different worlds, and that can potentially let barriers down. It's certainly not any kind of a formula because people can react in a variety of different ways. Some people can become more defensive. Some people, maybe even when their humanity threatens to come out, when they have to give up their illusions, sure, they may become even more defensive and hostile. So there isn't any guarantee, right? As as Walter Davis says throughout his works, we have to live without a a world of guarantees because there is a complexity and volatility to human emotions and our, our vulnerabilities and despair. But 
It's not about logic and proving people wrong in many ways. It's about revealing one's humanity. And that has far more of a potential than trying to reach a part of the brain, which is going to be activated more defensively through various kinds of arguments. I mean, this is why I mentioned Drew Weston's name earlier, that when you argue with certain kinds of logic, you're reaching the wrong part of the brain that's going to respond. And in many ways, you're going to make people more uptight and defensive and suspicious. So at least a start would be some kind of genuine humanity. Although, as I even implied, for some people, even showing them that kind of humanity can trigger their own anxiety of vulnerability and their hostility. And for all we know, they might call you some sort of a, a snowflake or, or, or worse. I've been called a snowflake. Yeah. <laughs> I, didn't, I, yeah. I didn't know what it meant at first of like, what is that? You know? Well, I mean, uh, apparently, you know, there are all sorts of implications about what kind of a, a weakling by calling you that. But, you know, the irony, by the way, of that term, not that I'm an expert on this at all or anything else, but doesn't that term come from Fight Club? It could. It's very possible. I don't know. I know okay. I, this is an amazing term. My sort of demented fantasy of that term is that it comes from Fight Club and that it's something that Tyler Durden said. And the irony here is that Tyler Durden is sort of the psychopathic delusional fantasy aggressor in the film rather than the sane human part of the, the film. The Brad Pitt character. Exactly. The yeah, Brad Pitt yeah. character. By the way, he hit on my on my mother, so I still have to talk to him about that. But um, <laughs> but whole other story. But Brad, no, no, actually it was my mother hitting on Brad Pitt. Oh, anyway, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. My point is that the term snowflake derives from the delusional psychopathic character. And so that when people are calling others snowflakes, they are unwittingly without any sense of irony, identifying with the psychopathically violent personality in the film. Yeah. Which, in a weird way, um, leads us to this question about conservatives wanting strong national borders. Where does all that come from? Okay, so once again, there is the distinction between the realistic danger and the unrealistic danger, right? And so, yeah, there are clearly people coming over the border, and maybe some of them are criminals. Maybe some of them are hypothetically drug dealers or other sorts of lascivious characters. But there's a vast difference between the reality of who some of these people might be as criminals and the fantasy that they're rapists and murderers and so forth. And so have you ever talked to people who, who really believe that we need strong borders? There is, again, the actuality of why we would hypothetically need these borders. There's the actuality of what happens when we have unregistered people in the country who who don't have any kind of registry and, and therefore you don't have whatever it means, don't have insurance, don't pay taxes, are unaccountable. There are all sorts of potential problems that might exist. But then there's the fantasy of what these people are supposedly doing. There's the fantasy that they're not paying taxes. So the, the fantasy that they're committing more crimes, because statistically speaking, immigrants commit fewer crimes, right? So the fantasy is what's at issue here. Do we need in certain cases to strengthen borders? or provide the kinds of vetting or the kinds of regulation that would stop certain kinds of crimes from happening. Yeah, okay. But I mean, we actually do have some of those regulations. We do vet people and all that sort of stuff. Are there problems? Yes. Are there dangerous people? Yes. But there's also the fantasy. And if you talk to people who are really passionate about why we need strong borders, we're going to have to recognize the the sort of space between the reality of those problems and the fantasies of what these people, whoever they are, supposedly like. I've spoken to certain people about this, and people will sort of spout out those kinds of cliches. They're stealing our jobs. They're all marauding around. They're all going to commit crimes. These are the wicked people who are preying upon us and so forth. And so 
there is that disparity between the realistic problems and the quasi-paranoid fantasies. Not that we're going to convince people with logic, but yeah, many of the people who are obsessed about the borders are themselves unfortunately ensconced in various kinds of fantasies about what these people supposedly are and what they're doing, what crimes they're committing, what their malevolent intentions are, and so forth. And it's unfortunate that people are, as Nietzsche would say, uh, screaming too loudly to think in terms of subtleties, that that anxiety about these kind of lurking, sneaky, wicked people is really, in, in many ways, unsusceptible or invulnerable to any kind of reason or to the facts. Because in many cases, not all, but in many cases, these kinds of fantasies are diminishing despair, diminishing death anxiety, making people feel safe. It's the illusion of safety. It's the kind of protective paranoid fantasy that has to be weighed up against the real facts of what kind of dangers people might actually pose. And so there is that tremendous disparity in many cases over what the actual dangers are and what these, I keep putting this in quotes, air quotes, what these people supposedly want. Well, many people clearly are seeking out a better life and many people are fleeing injustice and persecution and all sorts of horror. So not surprisingly, these human beings are not who we think they are. And actual problems and dangers aside, there is that unfortunate fantasy which isn't just an error. It's not just a mistake. It's not just a bad mathematical calculation. It's not just what they've read in the news or heard in the news that is some sort of mistake that can be easily corrected with facts. In many cases, it is a very gratifying fantasy that displaces and locates evil and in order to make the self feel powerful and safe against that danger, to give that evil a face and then to punish that face and put it in cages, etc., in, in order to displace fear and even wickedness from the self. And so there's all this complexity going on. Good luck uh, trying to convince people who are ensconced in that to realize it. I mean, as James Hillman said, those people in a fantasy of domination are almost never aware that they're in the fantasy of domination. And I'm not sure if he said almost. <laughs> yeah. Jerry, my whole life, I've heard the expression holy war. Yeah. As if it somehow makes it better. Can you talk about what, what is a holy war? Well, explicitly, holy war is a war that is undertaken in the name of some sort of righteous holy cause. So, I mean, you know, you could call certain kinds of jihad or crusades holy wars, even though jihad has many complex meanings that don't have to do with physical violence at all. But What's fascinating about the term holy war, especially when used by Becker, is that he doesn't just mean it explicitly as if it has to actually be religious. It doesn't have to be explicitly religious at all. It doesn't have to involve religion. It doesn't have to involve God or any kind of church or any kind of religious faith per se. The term holy war by Becker is used as a kind of a hyperbola. It's a way for him to describe what I was alluding to earlier and the way in which things become sacred, metaphorically speaking, sacred, not literally sacred as in blessed by some sort of a priest or something, sacred to the extent that they are ultimate concern and inviolable, sacred to the extent that these things are necessary in order to ensure psychological survival and equanimity, and sacred because people need them to be absolutely true, sacred because they need to be elevated to some sort of eternal inviolable truths such that they aren't recognized as fantasies or mythologies or individual ways of escaping dread or something, or even social fictions. So holiness is imbued not just with overt religiosity, but holiness is in a sense a reflection of the degree of despair and need and terror 
driving the fantasy and driving the act, that people make them into something holy because they are modes of salvation, existential salvation rather than literal salvation. Is it the same thing when we say a just war, like World War II was the just war? Is it the same? Well, no. I mean, there can be there can be just wars, right? I right. mean, um, you may be a pacifist and say there's no such thing as a just war. That's arguable. But there's a difference between saying this is why there is a moral necessity for intervention. This is why certain actions need to be taken. For example, you say World War II. Well, I guess someone's going to make the case. Look, Hitler is spreading palpable violence. He's committing genocide. There is a moral and pragmatic reason to stop this actual threat. It's not a paranoid fantasized threat. It's an actual threat, killing millions and millions of people. So there are times in which one could create a moral justification for uh, action that is not based in paranoid fantasy, that's not based in the eradication of existential death anxiety or the projection of evil onto others. It actually happens that there are sometimes actual evils and there are actual injustices that can be morally justified. Okay, let's not, even if we engage in this kind of Beccarian thought where we talk about delusions and fantasies, let's not pretend that there aren't times in which human beings can be reasonable, in which there are moral necessities for these kinds of acts. As Ralph Nader once said, there are brutish people in this world. Yeah, there are brutish people in this world. And indeed, I mean, as Hobbes said, I mean, there are times in which life can be nasty, solitary, brutish, and short because of genuine violence in the world and and so forth. So yeah, this is not some sort of a pacifistic, nutty, crunchy, LSD-saturated attempt to claim that there are never any kind of just reasons for political or military action. That's not what this is about. It's about distinguishing that from the fantasy of what that is, which is vastly different. So when people imagine that we're going to destroy terrorists by bombing Iraq into the Stone Age, and we're going to use depleted nuclear shells, and we're going to torture civilians, and we're going to crush them and dominate them, even though they had nothing to do with 9-11, that's where we see the difference between reasoned just military intervention and virtually quasi-psychotic delusion of eliminating evil and or political machination that is designed to fool people while exploiting resources and so forth. Well, that's a tough one to actually try to sort that out while it's happening, while people are waving the flag and while they're saying we've got to, like you said, bomb them into the Stone Age. When other people well, yeah. are saying it's a police action, it's an Interpol action, the military shouldn't even be involved in this. It's well, a tough one. But Steve, even at the time, weren't you aware of the kind of weird subterfuge going on? Absolutely. Look, Steve, I mean, on 9-11, I was on Hoboken Pier watching the Twin Towers burn. And uh, I remember one of my first thoughts was, oh, Jesus, we're going to kill somebody and respond. We're not going to necessarily track down the people who committed this. Uh, not even the people, obviously, who died in the process, but I mean, we're not going to necessarily track down the people who are really responsible for this. We're going to find some scapegoat to destroy, and either we need that scapegoat for some sort of psychological vengeance, or we're going to invade some other country because that's a really great pretext to sort of exploit their resources and so forth, or galvanize the American people into feeling that they're safe and so forth. I mean, I was sitting or standing on the pier watching the burning, thinking, oh my God, this is going to happen. We're going to find somebody to target and somebody villainize and scapegoat who isn't the actual perpetrator. So even at the time, there was the possibility, if you're watching the news and watching the political speeches of saying, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. Why are we going from one to the other? Why does this actual act justify this particular response? It should have been really obvious to people. 
And it was obvious to many people, not just after 9-11, but in the ensuing years, right? I mean, even in 2003, there was uh, Bruce Hoffman, the expert on terrorism from the Rand Corporation, was saying, look, Al-Qaeda is regrouping while we're killing other people. While we are destroying other people in the name of righteousness and justice and patriotism and so forth, we're actually allowing various terrorists to thrive and regroup. And so there's that weird disparity between the actuality of what is necessary and the actuality of danger and the kinds of ludicrous mirages and quasi-delusional fantasies we're having about it, which don't solve any practical problems, but they do enable us to feel that illusion of triumph and apotheosis and conquest of death and evil and so forth. And the political necessity. I mean, it's arguably arguable point that George W. Bush would have been impeached if he hadn't taken some strong military action. Well, indeed, that's why I talk about the... um, Yeah. I talk about the pragmatic issues and the the political machinations that are also driving this stuff, whether it's the drive for oil or exploitation of resources or the political maneuvers that enable people to retain power and stay in office and do all sorts of other stuff. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't want to only reduce it to all of these psychological fantasies. There are also the political machinations, which, by the way, are also sometimes imbued with fantasies. But let's not pretend that that it's simplistically one or the other. Yeah. Yeah. Jerry, uh, as we're getting to the end of our time and we always try to find some hope at the end of these conversations, even though we're talking about seemingly hopeless topics, where in all of this discussion of war, is there any, is there any hope we're going to overcome our natural tendencies to do this? Wait, doesn't Sheldon Solomon always quote that great line that science is the refusal to believe on the basis of hope? Okay. So um, yeah, that aside, (laughs) Hope is the last thing that falls out of Pandora's box. All right. Well, as much as I love to talk about Pandora's box and everything inappropriate that that implies. um, (laughs) uh, Don't go there. (laughs) So, look, uh, Ken, I don't don't want to eliminate any kind of possibility of optimism or possibility of humanity ever being compassionate. There There are people who are genuinely compassionate out there. There are people who are ardently working for the good of humanity that, uh, in ways that don't involve demonization and othering and slaughter. There are all sorts of, I mean, really amazing trends among young people where they're doing great stuff for the environment and bringing people together and really trying to combat this sort of adversarial violence. I mean, there are plenty of people who are not doing that. There are plenty of people who are sort of righteously woke and full of hostility and maybe canceling each other and so forth. But there are also lots and lots of people who really do care and they're not caring in a way that demonizes and vilifies and destroys others. They're really amazing people out there who are doing incredible things for humanity and the environment. So there is, I think, cause for some optimism that there really is uh, compassion out there. And there really is a loving perspective that isn't just self-righteous and vengeful. Now, is there hope that we're not going to destroy ourselves? Is there a legitimate, reasonable hope that the people out there committed to this kind of, of compassion are going to win out against the violence and the self-destructiveness. Now, I remember that Star Trek episode where McCoy sort of slyly says to Kirk, you know, evil usually wins out over good, in my experience, right? So um, it is tempting to be cynical about that, especially if we consider how much bloodshed we've inflicted in the course of history. Wright Hillman says that in recorded history, there are 14,600 wars. And that was, of course, before the last 50 we've seen, right? Um, And Dr. McCoy is always right. uh, Well, he's most of the time. All right, that 
that's that's another podcast episode. That's a whole show. <laughs> another um, show. Uh, uh, yeah, but that aside, again, yeah, there is some Ken. I think there is some reason to have a certain amount of at least not unrealistic, but hope and esteem for so many amazing people in the society who are enduring injustice and enduring our inhumanity to each other and somehow managing to survive with the capacity for love and compassion. I find that incredibly amazing. Uh, so yeah, there is a reason to think that human beings are capable of, of really just truly appallingly humane acts toward one another. Yeah. This is great. Folks, we've been talking with Dr. Jerry Piven about war and related issues, including Star Trek. Jerry, thank you once again for a terrific conversation. All right. Well, my pleasure. Thank when you, do we begin? I'm ready to start talking about the serious stuff. Good. There you I go. Hope, I hope, yeah, I hope we can ask you to come back because you're uh, our, one, of, one of our favorite pessimists. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> but you're, you're making me wonder what's wrong with you guys. Um, but, uh, but, um, but I appreciate the, the sentiment, and I'm happy to come back anytime you want me. I just can't promise to, to make any sense. Oh, uh, yeah, uh, you, you always, always do. do. Thank you so much. Take care. You too. You've been listening to an interview with psychologist Jerry Piven discussing the realities, unrealities, and apotheosis of war. Steve, what's your takeaway? Well, once again, Jerry gave us an extremely thought-provoking discussion. Boy, he sure did, didn't he? Yeah, man. First of all, Jerry focused on a distinction between the realistic danger and the unrealistic danger inherent in war. He enumerated a long list of fantasies that people have about war, starting with semiotic or symbolic fantasies that diminish despair, diminish death anxiety, and make people feel safe. He talked about a kind of mythology, a fantastical imagining of sanctimonious necessity, elimination of evil, righteous intervention, even divine mandate all couched in a kind of zealous, patriotic defense of life and freedom against injustice and actual danger. One problem is that all this fiction and fantasy has so blurred and blended the difference between actual threats and fairy tale fantasies that people may derive deep gratification from the mirage that we're actually purging evil as we massacre countless human beings. Yeah, and a major fantasy is that we're protecting our freedom and democracy. We love those terms. But we're so incredibly inconsistent and incoherent and often hypocritical about it that when we start to slaughter people and kill them self-righteously, we imagine that we're doing something for the sake of humanity and the planet. It gives us a sense of meaning. These notions don't depend on the accrual of facts and evidence. People have the propensity to reject facts and cling to their fantasies even when inundated by mountains of evidence. Yeah, and this is a disturbing thing from recent politics and other things. Jerry quotes, among others, the psychiatrist R.D. Lang, saying that human beings, we have an almost unlimited capacity for self-deception. It's not just a denial or rejection of painful facts. It's also that we'll sometimes throw ourselves into these fantastical narratives because those are the ones that blot out the dread of death, or in many cases, 
not only blot out the dread, but blot out our awareness of who we are and what our motives are in what we're doing. It's a complex argument, but it makes a lot of sense. War is a powerful defense against our individual and collective death anxiety. So there isn't an easy answer to this. Jerry doesn't have any kind of a real solution. Foiled again. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, He spoke quite a bit about the theories of Ernest Becker. He said that the dread of death impels people to hurl ourselves into cultural hero systems. That is, we reflectively seek out those culturally defined paths to appear heroic, which is different from actually being heroic in the sense of having bravery or courage. Becker was alluding to a way of attaining self-esteem by following practices or fulfilling roles that society deems admirable. That would provide feelings of being good, virtuous, special, or significant rather than insignificant, weak, or despicable. And this is getting into the weeds a bit. Yes, it is. But, yeah, he said heroism is a reflex, not courage and confrontation with death, but fleeing from our inevitable individual death, a strategy of attaining self-esteem and feelings of significance that dissipate the dread of death. Yeah, this is all Becker, what we call Becker 101. Yep, it is. And, you know, if you've read The Denial of Death, this kind of resonates. Yeah. Jerry's saying war could bring about the most noble and courageous acts, but it could also bring out the most inane postures of heroism that only thinly veil weakness and fear. We seek out modes of violence and death to create the masquerade of courage or nobility. And the irony here is that when people are committing acts of bloodshed, or when engaged in war, they have the fantasy that they're serving their country, they're defending the nation against actual danger and evil. But as Becker is saying, this is all really kind of a fantasy. Meanwhile, we develop these illusions of other human beings as evil and dangerous, and when we start to inflict violence on them, we imagine it as patriotic and righteous, even as we're slaughtering people. That's the irony. Yeah, it's an irony, unless you're the one getting slaughtered. Yeah. So, whatever the reality of the events, we interpret them in a fantastical way. War can magically transform us from insignificant weakling nobodies into the pinnacle of patriotic nobility and superiority. It can transform the enemy into the embodiment of malice or wickedness. It can transform slaughter into sanctimonious salvation and heroism and give us a patriotic mandate to kill anything, the right to torture, humiliate, and massacre all those despicable beings. It can be a fantasy that displaces fear, misery, spite, bitterness, helplessness, and self-loathing into the enemy so that they are evil while we are purified and amplified. A most egregious example of the fantastical nature of war was the justification for the Iraq War. Right. 9-11 was not committed by Iraq. It's a kind of weird, demented fantasy to say, oh, okay, if terrorists from individual organizations that are based in Saudi Arabia attacked us, Let's go bomb the Iraqis. Jerry calls it a kind of comical American response and pretext for warfare. 
The vengeance itself is more than it seems on the surface. We have to understand the psychology of the vengeance. At the same time, war has a way of uniting us patriotically. Boy, does it ever. Yeah, I mean, that. remember the, all the flags flying after 9-11. After 9-11, we were the most unified nation for a while there. Absolutely. It has this amazing capacity to make us allies against some sort of common enemy. And it has a fantastical way of displacing our anxieties. We can arise and unite and destroy that wickedness in an act of righteous vengeance or patriotism or nobility. And these fantasies or activities become sacred because they're so desperately necessary, because we are so desperate to escape ourselves, to escape our terror or despair, even our inner awareness. It becomes sacred because these fantasies or delusions or activities purify and redeem us. While war provides meaning, it also becomes a sacred triumph over death, over the terror of one's own annihilation, a defense against the existential death that we all dread. People make the justifications for war into something holy because they are modes of salvation, existential salvation rather than literal salvation. There are times when one could create a moral justification for action that is not based in paranoid fantasy. So there is a weird disparity between actual danger and the ludicrous mirages and quasi-delusional fantasies we're having about it. These delusions don't solve any practical problems, but they do enable us to feel an illusion of triumph and conquest of death and evil. All this makes solutions hard. Some people can become more defensive when their humanity threatens to come out, when they have to give up their illusions. They may become even more defensive and hostile. The answer is not logic. It's not proving people wrong. We ended up talking about hope, as we often do, or at least try to. Jerry says there are people who are genuinely compassionate. These are people who are ardently working for the good of humanity. There are all sorts of really amazing trends among young people where they're doing great stuff for the environment and bringing people together and really trying to combat adversarial violence. There's also lots and lots of people who really do care, and not in a way that demonizes and vilifies and destroys others. There are people out there who are doing incredible things for humanity. The question is... Is there a legitimate, reasonable hope that the people out there committed to compassion are going to win out against the violence and self-destructiveness? There is some reason to have a certain amount of not unrealistic hope and esteem for so many amazing people in the society who are enduring injustice and enduring our inhumanity to each other. They are somehow managing to survive with the capacity for love and compassion. I enjoyed this uniquely Jerry line. Human beings are capable of appallingly humane acts toward one another. <laughs> appallingly humane. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Important ideas, Steve. You know it. So thank you, Jerry. Folks, join us next time. Like us on Facebook. Please recommend us to your friends. You can find us at www.thehubforimportantideas.com. 
and support us on Patreon at www.patreon.com front slash the hub important ideas. We are 100% listener supported. And please check out our documentary video series, Conversations with Solomon, Exploring Human Motivation, now on YouTube. Thank you, everyone, for listening to The Hub for Important Ideas. I'm Steve James. And I'm Ken Swain. Stay safe, everybody. Stay well. This has been a Contemporary Heroism Initiative production.